Jessica Rabbit. No. <laughs> hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the first Thursday of the month, which means it's time for our monthly Q&A with our plant-based dermatologist, Dr. Jessica Krant, who believes that healthy skin starts from within because in addition to being a board-certified dermatologist practicing in Manhattan, she is also a lifestyle medicine doctor. Please welcome her to the show. It's so good to see you again. Hi, Chef AJ. I missed you guys and I'm so happy to be back. Me too. Well, I always joke that, uh, you know, there's like a, it's like a neck and neck race between doc, you and Dr. McDougall and Dr. Lyle and Dr. Krant, now even Dr. Weiss, who gets the most questions. But I think we have a record this time because there are 49 questions that have been submitted for you. I know we can't get to all of them. We'll get to as many as we can. We'll save the others. That's why guys, it's so important to submit your questions because you see, when you type it in the chat, it disappears. When you send it in through email, we save it until it gets answered. It might take a while, but we'll never forget you and we'll even email you. That's our service telling you when it has been answered so you know which episode to watch. Very simple. Just go to chefaj.com, subscribe to my newsletter once a week on Saturday, sometimes Sunday. We send you the show schedule and then you can just respond back to that. And if you want to do anonymous, that's fine. We're getting a lot of anonymous questions lately. We only say your first name anyway. So like if your name's Bob, I don't think they would know. But anyway, how are you doing? How is skin? How is the world of skin right now? <laughs> um, the world of skin is, as always, very exciting, you know, especially with new technologies in terms of devices, which I know some about, but not everything about with new skin topical products. And of course, with the ever popular anti-aging conversation that's always ongoing. Plus, we have a lot of things going on in the um, anti-aging, healthy, plant-based world. So it's a it's a fun time. Well, that's great. Well, I would, you know, it could be fun if one day you just did a show develop, you know, showing some of these things, like like actually in your office, because, you know, we don't really know a lot of us about these procedures unless we've either had them or read about them. I can do that. And if you, if you Google me and look on YouTube, there are here and there some talks that I've given about some of the procedures and some of the devices over the years, but I can always do more. Well, because I would love to know because, you know, even things that have been around a while, like Botox, for example, I don't know whether you use it or recommend it, but I got to tell you that like when I talk to most of the plant-based doctors that are not dermatologists, of course, they are thumbs down unequivocally that there's too many risks and side effects for things that a lot of people do. So I'd really love to like, maybe not see you do the procedure, but hear a little bit more in depth about what it is, risk benefits. Exactly. You know, I, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, as a, a traditionally trained Western medicine board certified dermatologist, I, I do some of those procedures on my patients and I always have felt, you know, mixed feelings about supporting what individual people want to do, but also being careful about where our culture is going with, you know, how much we're paying attention to external aging and external procedures for, for anti-aging. Um, but I also want to talk to the audience of people who want to be healthy, want to be especially plant-based vegan, um, but also are curious and don't want to feel ashamed that they would like to know about Botox, about a little bit of the more safe fillers, safe lasers, and some of those, you know, procedures, not necessarily saying they're going to completely transform themselves or look different or have big surgery, but maybe there's a middle ground where we can talk about both. And of course, you know, everything in life, Dr. Lyle says, is a CV, cost benefit analysis, risk benefit. But when you hear some of the scary stories, you know, like, for example, I had a friend who's married to a doctor and his job is like, he creates like computer graphics for like lawsuits. Right. And, you know, we were talking about this one night at dinner because I was like, oh, I'd like to have some work done. And he was it, this was an actual case where a lady got I, I think it was fillers, not Botox and ended up blind. You know, and so I think people need to know that this is a possible side effect before they do something like that. Don't you? 
Absolutely. That's why I really, especially in this exploding world of anti-aging procedures, I really think it's so important to make sure that you're seeing a board certified dermatologist. That's somebody who really went to actual medical school and did a residency in dermatology and even fellowships in these procedures or a board certified plastic surgeon, board certified oculo plastic surgeon, and board certified facial plastic surgeon. Those are really the four core uh, specialties of real physicians who have training in these in these areas. And now there are so many other people doing them with varying degrees of experience and training. And some people who never went to medical school um, and don't really know the anatomy of what they're treating. So I was a fellowship trained Mohs surgeon, which is a facial skin cancer surgeon. So we really have heavy experience with training in anatomy, with surgery in the face. We can see where everything is. We know 3D wise what's underneath that spot that we're that we're poking with the needle. Not everybody really understands what's there. And especially fillers can be high risk. Botox is a little bit less risky in terms of a very serious long-term side effect if you're using real medical grade Botox, but you can still cause somebody very severe problems for six to eight months if you do something wrong. Filler can cause skin tissue death, scarring and blindness. So that's that's a pretty serious risk to take on and it you should definitely only see somebody that is appropriately trained. Absolutely. How much of your practice is uh, cosmetic versus you know, what, what's the other word that I'm thinking of? I would say medical uh, is the other word, medical, like acne, rashes, skin cancer screenings, things like that. A little bit of surgery that I still do these days, which is office-based, um, removing things and, do, you know, putting stitches in the office. And cosmetic would be all of the optional cosmetic procedures. I think right now for me, cosmetic is about 30 to 40%, you know, it depends on the day and then the season, this is high season for cosmetic. So now we're about 50 to 60% getting ready for the holidays, but it varies, you know, during certain seasons, people like to do different things. I think it depends where a person lives, don't you? Because I got to tell you, I, I'm a most wonderful dermatologist. He looks like he's 10 years old, but I went to him because I had this like burn, right? And, you know, I'd asked him about some of these procedures and it's interesting because up where I live, no, there's, there really isn't a lot of plastic surgeons. I think because you're in Manhattan, it's like being in LA. There's, don't you agree? Like West Palm beach, there's certain uh, cities that attract more of people wanting cosmetic procedures than where he is in grass Valley, you know? Well, even more than that, actually, there are regions that attract more doctors in general. So there are not even as many dermatologists in, in different regions of the country and in different states. So it can be harder to find a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon in different areas. So taking that, and then not everybody does cosmetic procedures. So it can be even harder to find somebody experienced who's an appropriately trained physician, who is also an appropriately trained provider of those procedures. It's true. How do you feel about like these people that go to these parties and it's not a medical doctor? I've heard of them like filler parties and Botox parties. And I'm like, oh gosh, that's not, this isn't Tupperware guys, you know? <laughs> I mean, you probably know exactly how I feel. I about know, but, I, I, it's, it's, <laughs> but what people will do in the name of beauty and trying to look younger, it's, it's incredible. You know, I think that some of it is a lack of understanding by the public about what the risk really is of these things. You know, I've even had patients in the office um, faint from getting Botox. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be at somebody's house and and somebody's having a, a fainting spell, which could be a heart arrhythmia or a seizure. I mean, there's, a, you know, medical things can happen during these procedures. And I would not want to be caught in a, in a non-medical setting, especially if there's not a physician in the room, you know, it's somebody who thinks it's just going to be a Botox party, but they're all drinking champagne, which I don't think is a good idea to mix with needles. 
and somebody is a little lightheaded and they don't handle the procedure well, you know, there's just could, so many things could be going on. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get into the questions. And I told you about this first one in advance. And you said that Dr. Michael Gregor has this amazing new book that is out. He's going to be on the show next week, I believe, How Not to Age. It talked about this. I heard him first say it at the Plantrician Conference. And Anonymous is asking the question that he said that trentinoin, which my understanding from you is just the molecule of Retin-A, it's one of the formulas, uh, has been banned in Europe for cosmetic reasons. According to a study, it could be killing people and he believes we shouldn't use it. What do you think about this? Well, first of all, I would like to say that I'm a huge fan of Dr. Gregor and this his this book actually launched this week on Tuesday. So this is his first week with the book out and first week book sales really help. So I hope that everybody will be like me and use it as our our healthy aging Bible going forward. But that little tidbit in there was very interesting to me. So I immediately started digging into it. And Dr. Greger does conclude the section on retinoids, which is in the chapter about anti-aging for skin, by saying that there have there's been reports of, of retinoids, which is the family of vitamin A derivatives that includes over-the-counter and prescription retinoids, that there was a report that it could kill you. It says may risk death. And that was very shocking to me. And, you know, my, of course, everybody's now asking me about it now that the book is out. And so I looked into it and Dr. Greger in this case is referring to one pretty famous study that came out in 2009. And it's a, was a study in a population of VA patients. That's the veterans Veterans Administration Hospital patients mo who were mostly men who were older, so I think older than 70 or maybe even older than 75 or 80. The study was intended to determine whether using the topical tretinoin, which is Retin-A, regularly could reduce the chances of future basal and squamous cell skin cancers. They started recruiting the patients in 1998, and they ended up stopping the study six months before they intended to stop because they found an overwhelming, uh, very obvious discrepancy between the two groups in the number of patients that died. And so it turned out that that really was a statistically significant difference uh, that would have only been explainable by chance um, it would have a 1% chance that it was a coincidence, which is which means it's pretty likely that something was going on. But later reviews decided that that was not a causal relationship and it was probably um, due potentially even to chance, that 1% chance. There, it turns out that there is some evidence that giving oral retinoids, that's oral vitamin A, to people who are smokers actually did increase their risk of getting lung cancer because vitamin A affects this, the skin cells called keratinocytes. So in the skin, we like that. It actually increases cell turnover. It, it juices them up. It makes them healthier. But keratinocytes also line the lung and line other organs like our bladder. So it's possible that oral vitamin A did increase cell division in people's lungs. And if they had a lung cancer cell sitting there, it may have increased their risk of lung cancer. However, in this Retin-A study, you would have then expected the increased deaths to be more attributed to lung cancer. And that wasn't actually the case. They weren't able to prove a, re a, a relationship directly with lung cancer. They were not able to prove a relationship with the dose, with the amount of Retin-A used. It, would, it should be the case that if Retin-A is causing the increased deaths, that using more Retin-A would have caused more deaths, and they were not able to show that. And they were also not able to 
prove some other causal relationships that would have been more definitive in terms of evidence-based science principles that the retin-A was actually causing the death. So in the end, they said, we're not sure what happened. Um, in this elderly population of men with a high risk of skin cancer, something happened, we don't know. And that result has never been repeated since. It's it's never been shown. And in all of the decades now, about 50 years of topical retinoid use, there has never been shown a trend toward increased death. So overall, I would say that I, as a dermatologist, am not worried about that particular study about the report of excess deaths. But I will say that vitamin A can be toxic. When we we know this from oral vitamin A, which is Accutane, um, also Acetretin or Soriatane that we have used for psoriasis in the past, um, more commonly, and some you know you can get vitamin A toxicity, taking vitamin A supplements, um, eating too many foods with vitamin A, so it can cause dangerous side effects. So it's a real concern. We do want to be careful and not overuse it. And in the European Union, they are actually coming out with regulations to restrict the strength of over-the-counter vitamin A derivatives that will be available starting in 2026, I believe. So somebody's watching. They're going to they're going to hold the allowable strength that can be sold in body lotion to the equivalent of retinol 0.05% strength. And they're going to hold the um, strength that can be sold in other products that aren't body lotions to the equivalent of 0.3% equivalent retinol strength. And retinol is the more most common over-the-counter one. So what that means is there are a lot of 1% retinol products out on the market right now. That, those are the ones you can just buy in the in the United States. You can just buy them in the drugstore or at Sephora or at Ulta or all these other these other sources. The one percent retinol is very common in the EU. Those will become illegal. Um, so I could go on about the science of body surface area to volume and why we want to be more careful about the body lotions getting absorbed. But I don't want to talk forever. Um, did I answer the question? I'm not really worried about it. Okay. So, so I guess he specifically seems to single out Trentoin or whatever the name is. Is it just that brand or is it just the percentage of Retin-A that's in that so that others are equally harmful or not harmful? Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't think that applying Tretinoin to our skin has been linked to, to death. I don't believe that we have to worry about it right now. However, I would say that tretinoin and also tazeratine, which is another prescription strength retinoid cream, are, are not necessarily safe with no regulation at all to put on large body surface areas on a daily basis. So some people have gotten the idea that they want to use them for arm wrinkles, leg spots, stretch marks. And it used to be sold uh, over the counter version of it used to be sold in a, in a product called Strivectin. That was like the first stretch mark cream. I would watch out using it on large body surface areas on a regular basis. Uh, the face is only about 5% of our body surface area. So I'm not worried about people using tretinoin daily on our faces. Right. And so you, this is maybe something you prescribe even. Tretinoin is prescription only in the United States. Right. But and is this something you're comfortable prescribing to a patient? Oh, yes. It will be also, uh, it is going to be also prescription strength available in the EU. And this is not including the UK, which is not following the EU regulations on this. I could okay. talk, go on and on. I have a lot more that I well, actually look into, I, I, but we can talk another time too. No, I feel this is very interesting because the question asker and other people that are asking are asking it because they're on this product and now they're afraid to take it. So they're not just I, asking theoretically, they're asking like, is this is this really true? Maybe you could say why somebody would be prescribed or ask their physician for this cream and what it does. 
Tretinoin is the um, generic name for the molecule that's in the original FDA approved Retin-A. That was the first brand name that was came out about 50 years ago. Retin-A was the first FDA tested and approved anti-wrinkle cream. It also is FDA approved to treat acne and its cousin Tazeratine, which is um, Tazerac brand and other, and other brand names was FDA approved for wrinkles and which is for anti-aging and also for um, acne. And I believe also for psoriasis. So what these creams do, which is the benefit of all of the retinoids, including Accutane, the oral retinoid for acne, they regulate and make healthier the growth and development of the keratinocyte cell. And the keratinocyte is one of three cell types that we have in our skin. We have the main skin that we look at that we think of as our skin is are made up of keratinocytes. That's our juicy keratinocyte layer, the regular layer of skin. And then the very thin layer on top is a flattened layer. That's a barrier layer of keratinocytes called the stratum corneum. All of that is keratinocytes. The very, very bottom, bottom layer of the skin where the keratinocytes are born is called the basal layer. And technically, because those are not differentiated into keratinocytes yet, we call those basal cells. So basal cells that go bad and go naughty turn into basal cell carcinoma, basal cell skin cancer. When a keratinocyte that has already been differentiated goes bad and becomes cancer, that turns into squamous cell carcinoma. And then this scattered pigment cells that are the, in the, in a picture, they're the little brown ones. Those are melanocytes and they're a completely different cell type. And when a melanocyte that creates our pigment and creates our moles, when those turn bad, that's the cell that turns into melanoma. And I just want to highlight that because a lot of people don't realize that melanoma is a type of skin cancer. A lot of people use melanoma as a synonym for skin cancer. And I think it's important to know that there is melanoma, which is the number one killer in terms of skin cancer and almost possibly the number one killer of all cancers in terms of risk when you get it. Um, although in terms of the number of people that get it, it might not be the biggest killer overall, but it's very dangerous to get melanoma. But when you get a basal cell skin cancer, which is a carcinoma, or a squamous cell skin cancer, which is a carcinoma, that's because those are a certain type of a, a cell. When that becomes cancer, we call it carcinoma. Those are a different type of skin cancer from melanoma. And the reason I'm going into this is to say that that study was done at the VA because retinoids were being studied and have shown evidence over the years of helping to regulate and make these keratinocytes grow in a healthier way. So not only does that help in terms of keeping them juicy, triggering new collagen formation even, which is below the keratinocytes and sh shedding a little bit of the external layer of the dried out cells a little faster. So we have more of a glow and less wrinkling. It also may regulate the cell development so that they're less prone to and also may reverse some changes that start to become cancerous. So overall, the retinoids are a very interesting group of molecules for skin health, and they're, and they're not just for anti-aging. They probably do reduce the risk of future skin cancers, although that, interestingly, that particular 2009 study from the VA concluded later in 2012 that they hadn't been able to prove that. I, I sense that may be because they started with such an elderly population that a lot of that skin had already been so damaged, they weren't really able to make a, an impact at that time. But if we start with the retinoids younger, we may be reducing our lifetime risk of skin cancer. Nice. Well, thank, do you see a lot of skin cancer where you are? 
I do see, I do see a lot of skin cancer because my patient population ranges from basically preteens to, you know, patients in their nineties. So by, by that time, it's pretty likely that someone's going to get at least one basal cell skin cancer, which is the most common, but least dangerous type. When I was doing Mohs surgery, more Mohs surgery, that was basically my main practice was all skin cancer. So I don't see as much now as I used to, but I do a lot of skin cancer screenings. I try to minimize the number of biopsies that I have to do. But when I see something suspicious, we do a little biopsy, we test it, and we make sure we don't leave a skin cancer sitting there because it does continue to develop. And even the basal cell carcinomas, which are the least dangerous, when they get really bad and they grow and grow, they actually can attach to nerves and spread into the body, potentially spread around by blood vessels, just like any other metastatic cancer. They can be very dangerous too, although it's much more rare. Melanoma is really the big scary and squamous cell carcinoma, which is the medium scary one, um, is much scarier if it's found on the head and neck. So if there's a head, neck, ears, lip, nose, squamous cell carcinoma, something on the scalp, those can be quite high risk. So those are pretty serious. Right. Well, thank you. All right. The next question is from Anonymous and it's about acne. Oh, where did it go? I just jumped the thing. Sorry about that. And it's about adult acne, actually. And it's, this is uh, somebody writing on behalf of their daughter and they are 23 with adult onset, very painful cystic acne on their entire face, less so on their forehead. Their skin was clear and perfect all through high school. They tried eliminating dairy and have used countless topical products with no avail. Recently started birth control pills a week ago in hopes it would help. Are there any medications or treatments that will show benefit for this issue? Well, first I would, I just wanted to say that I think of a 20, I'm so old now. <laughs> I, think, I think of a 23 year old as really a, a, an older teenager almost. So when I say, when I think of adult acne, I think I'm thinking of it in somebody who's in their like thirties, forties, fifties. So I count a 22, 23 year old as somebody who's still dealing with that very hormonal, like almost post teenage acne. And we really go through puberty. I mean, it, you know, in our culture right now, it could even start as early as eight or nine or 10, but people could be going through those changes and hormonal shifting up to the mid twenties, even, even women, men to men go through puberty till 28. So 22, 23 is still a time of a lot of shifting hormones and I, hopefully the birth control pills, which are hormonal medications may help to regulate and balance this person's skin and settle down some of that acne. I, I have a lot of young women coming to me these days saying, oh, I think my acne is hormonal. And I always say, you know, the truth is that all acne is hormonal, even in men. Acne comes from four causes. All acne is from four causes. It's from hormones. It's from inflammation. It can be a little bit from bacteria that can get trapped because of inflammation. And it can be um, keratinocytes and skin cells that are plugging the opening of pores a little bit. So depending on the, the balance of these four factors, it can control the type of acne we have, but all acne is a little bit hormonal. It's it's what we call androgenic, which is, um, tends to be the male hormones. So androgenetic alopecia or androgenic alopecia is male hormone related hair loss. And acne is also androgenic that anything that's like a testosterone tends to create more activity of oil glands and a little more inflammation and promote acne. So birth control pills, certain ones may help. I would say the IUDs are proving to potentially be a risk factor for promoting acne. So if you're somebody with acne prone skin, 
I would be cautious trying uh, an IUD and thinking it will help your skin. It still could be a very valuable form of birth control, um, reliable because you're not worrying about taking a pill. But if you feel like you're putting one of these hormonal IUDs in and then your skin's getting worse six months later, it's possible there could be a link. There are so many great and effective topical medications for acne. Um, it would be important to see a dermatologist to go through all of the options there. And another oral medication that may be helpful, especially in a hormonal type of acne, is something called spironolactone, which is the used to be the brand name aldactone. It turns out that that is a blood pressure medication that they found out accidentally, like is the discovery, the discovery of many of our medications and our even our cosmetic treatments. We find out by accident that people taking the spironolactone blood pressure medicine their skin was clearing up. So now over many, many, many years of us being caught careful with it, cautious with it, checking blood tests every three months, it evidence has gathered over time that it's relatively safe for healthy young women whose kidneys are healthy to try spironolactone uh, to directly address the hormonal pressure of acne. And in some people, it's very helpful. Right. So there's hope that it can improve, right? There's hope. And the other part of what I was starting to say was they don't even recommend that we have to do blood tests every three months anymore for that. Some doctors don't really do it at all if you're generally healthy. I'm relatively conservative in all aspects of my healthcare delivery. So I do check once a year or sometimes if we change a dose, I might check again just to make sure everything's healthy at baseline and we're not jumping into an area that where there's already a problem. Right. Thank you. Back to cosmetics. Well, actually Lynn, why everything is cosmetic if it's on the skin, right? Cause I mean, if it, if right. it has, so uh, Karen would like to know what are your thoughts on the led face masks and Nira and IRA pro laser. Do any of these types of products actually work? Well, it's funny that Nira Pro Laser, I was heckling them on all of their Facebook ads because they're calling themselves a laser. And from what I can tell from what they would admit to me, it's not actually a true laser, which I think <laughs> makes more sense because I don't know of any true collimated beam, single wavelength device that is truly a laser that is available in a home device. I might be wrong, but lasers can be quite dangerous. So I was shocked that they were selling. I think they're just calling it that. And they're almost like, almost like a laser, but not really a laser. So I think there are some kind of a, almost, um, almost an IPL type device that has a filtered filtered out wavelengths that they don't want. So they try to limit the wavelength of light that's coming out. And then they claim that they have lenses that are focusing the beam, but that's not the same as a true laser. So as far as the LED, the light emitting diode devices and the this type of a filtered light device, I'm sure that it is sometimes effective in things like hair removal, but also risky people get burned by these devices all the time. I can't even imagine using them at home. So maybe some people are lucky with it, but I don't, I'm not on board with that yet. The red light devices, there's some evidence that they may reduce inflammation. There are also blue light, green light, yellow light devices. I think these are all potentially helpful. I think it will be a long, long time before we have proof that somebody was using it and we can prove that it made a difference for them because the, the, the best type of skin research is done on the split, on a split face and a split face study where somebody acts as her own control. We treat one side of her face for a long time and not the other side, because that way everything else is held the same and it's easier to control all the variables. I don't think we have a lot of long-term split face studies on these home red light, red LED devices. So 
I know that one company's original red light mask was pulled off the market because of concerns about damage to vision and eyes. So I don't recommend any of this stuff. I don't have anything for sure negative to say about it, but I can't say it's a slam dunk, go get it. And you don't have to go to the dermatologist again. Be cautious in trying things and try to be scientific about proving for yourself whether it's really making a difference before you spend thousands of dollars and months of your life doing something that isn't really moving the needle. Yep. Thank you. And it is always very expensive. And it's funny. I, I, God, I wish you could have been at the Plantrition Conference. I would have introduced you to my, one of my other besties, Dr. Nikki Davis. We would have had so much fun. And there were these vendors in the lobby and the one selling, I don't know what it was, but like he did this thing where he put something on half your face and he showed, look, there's no wrinkles. But like 15 minutes later, they came back. They, like, it was like $6,000. And then he was like negotiating, okay, for you five, okay, for you for three. And they're always quite expensive, aren't they? Oh. Those, the, that was it a cream? Those creams in the old days, I don't know what's in them now, but in the old days they had uh, albumin, which is egg white. And they would work by, um, you put the, this cream on, it has a little egg white in it. And when it, and then they dry your face in this magical way, they tap it on, they make it a production, they dry your face. And then the egg white shrinks as it is drying and it tightens it shrinks the appearance of your pores and it kind of tightens up loose bags under your eyes. And it does smooth your skin out for the few minutes. Um, it is real, but I don't believe that these are worth the $2,000, $3,000 that they claim. And as you say, a few minutes later, you realize, you know, when you finally get to the hotel bathroom, um, it's worn off anyway, but they're not, you know, they're not completely bogus, but I don't, I, you know, I don't think they're as magical as they claim either. I, I know because I went through that sales pitch many years ago and they, they gave me one to try, but they did that whole rigmarole. And in the end, they wanted me to invest in, you know, more of their products. And I just didn't do it. Yeah. Is there anything that is cheap, safe, and effective for anti-aging or, I mean, other than eating well and staying out of the sun, like, and I'd love to do a whole product show. Does anything really work? You know, I see a lot of people, I mean, I've had Zoom meetings with people and like, they're wearing these things called frownies, like these, you know, these, these patches, you know, does anything really work? Well, I think everything works a little bit. I really do. I think everything works a little bit. Um, that egg white albumin skin tightener is one of the only things I've ever seen that just works like instantly, like when you're about to go on your QVC segment and you want to be all completely smooth for about 10 minutes. Um, but that's really, it does not doing anything long-term moisturizer has been proven to help. It actually makes a difference. Um, if you use a moisturizer regularly, of course you mentioned we know sunscreen does work and it has been proven that if you regularly use a sunscreen, it allows your skin to heal itself over time. So you actually do reverse some of your already existing sun damage just by using a moisturizer with SPF every day. The moisturizers help hydrate the cells and repair the barrier on the, on the outer layer of our skin. And when we have a healthy skin barrier, that has the appropriate pH, which is the acid mantle. And we have allowed our own natural moisturizing factor to come to the surface. Our skin is always trying to repair itself. Like our body, especially when we feed it whole plant foods with you know, lots of nutrients, all of those amazing molecules go into us and continually work to repair everything. So I think our bodies really are trying to anti-age all the time, as long as we support that process. And then we can do a little bit of all this other topical anti-aging stuff. And, you know, a tiny bit of Botox here and there, I'm not against. Um, and it all works together with going to sleep on time, hydrating, getting out into nature, you know, maintaining healthy relationships and low stress. It's all real. Yep. 
Hey, but isn't a lot of it genetic? I mean, when I think of, uh, you know, the lifestyle, of course, is important, but I think about my grandmother. She had literally the skin of a newborn baby the day she died at 86. Now, she wasn't necessarily healthy. She had diabetes, but she never smoked. She never drank alcohol. She never wore makeup. She washed her face with ivory soap. The only makeup she wore was lipstick, you know, red lipstick, and she never went in the sun. Ever. Ever. You know, I... I'm maybe a little late to the game, but I just, I think I just learned this week that ivory soap was really like the first, uh, I think it was the first commercial bar of soap that did not contain, um, now I forgot the word, it's not tallow, uh, is it lard? It's It was the first one that was not made from animal fat, the ivory soap, but you know, our grandmothers and, and our great grandmothers I think also came from that time when it was not considered ladylike to go into the sun and the, the leisure classes were proud, were proud of not getting sun. And they, they knew something that we forgot when Coco Chanel started showing off her leisure tan from the South of France in the sixties and seventies that then that became chic. Then we started seeking being tan and getting all of that sun damage. But before that, you know, I think people really weren't in the sun as much. So I think it is a little bit genetic. Of course, it runs in families, skin types, but also culture. Culture runs in generations. So it, we could flip back the other way now. Is there anything that really ruins skin more than, say, cigarette smoking or being in the sun? Without protection, that is, of course. Um, well, and, and illicit drugs. Yeah. You well, know? <laughs> I'm hoping I, here's the thing. I'm thinking if you're watching Chef AJ live, you're probably not taking those hopefully. And, and, and I, I, I've met, I mean, just, you know, being 50 or vegan, I know, I'm not saying that there are no vegans who are ethical vegans that smoke, but if somebody's vegan for health, wouldn't it be kind of weird if they were smoking? Right. I do think stress I really think that stress and also people don't realize that heat, chronic heat is, um, you know, does cause gradual changes in the skin. Um, and it's funny because in some ways now they're talking about saunas and infrared radiation as being uh, good for our immune system and a maybe anti-aging overall, but chronic heat on the face also causes pigmentation issues, inflammation, um, triggers rosacea, and it causes the damage and breakdown of the skin barrier. So that allows inflammation to get in, irritation from products, and over time, increased wrinkling and damage. It's, a, it's like a delicate balance here. When you say heat, do you mean like heat because you live somewhere hot or your heat is like, can you be more specific? Cause I keep my, my place at like 79. So is that too much? You know, I guess what I was picturing when I was saying that was somebody who's always like cooking over a hot stove, like <laughs> face right over the heat. Got it. Got it. Got yeah. it. All right. Nice. Cause I, uh, me, I like it warm, you know? <laughs> All right. Thank you. Um, this is from Mary. My eyelids are discolored and I now have blepharitis. And so the eye doctor says I can no longer wear eye makeup to cover it up. Is there anything I can do for the discoloration on my eyelids? They don't match the rest of my face. Thank you. Well, I, when we say discoloration, it's a, it's a little bit unclear which color. So people often assume we mean brown. But since I don't know Mary and I don't know what her skin looks like, I don't know if she means permanently red, uh, purplish, brown, or or something like that. But what I do know, and you know, I'm just a dermatologist. I'm not an oculoplastic surgeon or an ophthalmologist. But I have seen so many of my patients um, who have rosacea seborrheic dermatitis, or even something called demodex folliculitis, which is like, I'm sorry to say a little mite. A yeah, little I, know, I know what that is. Cause once I had a dog that had demodectic mange mites. So that's a word. Yes. It's mites. It's like little microscopic mites. They live inside our pores and sometimes they could get into our eyelash follicles. Um, so 
In my experience, when I have seen my patients with seborrheic dermatitis, which is dandruff that then can come onto the face or rosacea, a lot of them also have swollen eyelids, irritated eyelash glands, uh, lumpy eyelid edges, and that is blepharitis. That's the itis, which is the inflammation of the bleph, which is the eyelid. That's why they call eyelid surgery blepharoplasty. So blepharitis in some of my patients has been improved when I help them do treatments for all of these skin conditions in general. And I make sure they include treating their eyelids. And it comes up because I learned that a lot of people grew up not washing their eyelids or their eyelashes when they wash their face. So some people are either afraid to get soap in their eyes, or they just learn to wash the face by going around. And then they will do something like remove eye makeup with an oil-based eye makeup remover. And what's happening is dead skin cells, um, you know, even toxins, makeup particles, and even the molecules left over from the makeup remover are getting into the eyelash glands and into the, um, they call them also mybomian glands, the glands that produce moisture at the margins of the eyelid so that our eyes don't dry out. Things are getting stuck in there. And also there may be some pterosporum yeast or some demodex mites in those eyelash roots and causing inflammation and lumpiness. It's not the same as a sty, which is more like a cyst that's a little further up in the eyelid, but this blepharitis, when I teach my patients to actually gently close their eyes and use my, use their cleansers, their soaps, or at least an eye, a gentle eye cleanser to wash the eyelash roots and the lid margins. And along with our other treatments, sometimes that blepharitis does actually get better and it doesn't have to be chronic and relapsing and remitting, which is what a lot of people go through where they just have it on and off all the time. The reason that's important to know is first of all, let's get rid of it if we can. And sometimes people just aren't addressing it directly and they don't realize that they can do something. And the other reason is when you have it chronically over months and months and months, it does start to cause chronic changes of inflammation in the eyelid skin, which can be thickening, roughening, and darkening. So, so it may be that your, your audience member, and now I don't remember her name, has may have these skin color changes from the chronic blepharitis, but maybe something can be done. I don't know because I'm not looking at, at her. So, But those are just a bunch of my thoughts about it. All right. Yeah. Her name is Mary and she sent a follow-up and she said, it's just that her eyelids are a different color. She's like her skin to all be the same. And that's why she was using foundation on the eyes. So she, it would have more of a contiguous like look. Oh, I don't know if I heard the foundation on the eyes part, but yeah. Cause so she was told she can't wear any more makeup on her eyes, eyeshadow foundation, anything because of this. And she's using something called OcuSoft, like a, a lid cleanser. OcuSoft is the very gentle, classic lid cleanser that the ophthalmologists recommend. And I, as I said, I'm not an ophthalmologist, so I don't want to go against what my expert colleague is saying about their actual field. But, you know, I, I, in my office, I might see if there was something I could do to get away from it. The other thing to consider is if Mary is actually truly allergic to something in a skincare product or in a hair product, it could cause a chronic inflammation of the eyelids that will not get better unless the allergen is identified and then removed from her life. So I don't know if, if Mary has gone to the um, allergy doctor yet, but let me just say right here in the middle, as always, that I am not I'm not the doctor for the for these questions, so I'm not actually giving medical advice just giving general educational information and not giving any um, individual recommendations. I'm sorry to tell everybody. I just have to say that. Oh, next time we'll say it right at the beginning, huh? <laughs>
Well, I just want to help. So I hope it helps more than one person. Great. Thank you. Um, this one, I think is probably not going to be medical advice. So it'll be a good question. And it comes up a lot from Benito. Is there a bath soap you'd recommend or a liquid soap or a soap bar? And is a bar of soap okay? Or do you recommend Castile soap or beauty soap? Or and this could just be your opinion. I don't wouldn't think it's medical, you know? Well, I'm sure it might surprise some people to hear me say that for one thing, I think Americans use too much soap. I think that we, uh, especially some of us, way overbathe. Um, showering twice a day for 20 minutes in hot water and putting soap or body wash on our entire body both times and even scrubbing with loofahs, it's all damaging to the skin. So I, I first thing I do with my patients, especially this is the perfect season when everyone's starting to get dry and itchy in the winter, is tell everybody, whoa, 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 cut back on the showering and the baths and the water exposure. Water is very drying for our skin. And just as quick as you can get in and out and with the water not burning, burning hot, if you're someone who's getting dry and itchy, a few times a week, put some soap or body wash. And honestly, I don't really care as long as it's not extremely fragranced or causing you problems. Um, don't put it on arms and legs every single day. If you're not somebody that's working out, getting sweaty or muddy or dirty every day, we do need to clean the areas that produce oil because that's what harbors bacteria and creates odor. That would be face underarms, underwear area, and feet. The rest Oh, and belly button. Don't forget belly button because people forget to clean in there and sometimes infections can start. So gently put a little soapy water in the belly button, everything else, um, body, you know, probably daily, but arms and legs as you know, occasionally, cause they get very dried out and we don't, you know, they don't need to be stripped with soap and scrubbed every day. I don't know if I ever washed my belly button and I'm 63. <laughs> I'm gonna do that wow. as, as soon as the show is over. Right, is immediately. <laughs> Be careful though. You can really, you know, don't dig in there too much. Don't try to go in there and get every single thing because we, if you cause a a, a cut or a scrape in there, it can really get infected. So be gentle. Um, and as far as what type of soap or body wash, I feel like it's a kind of amazing that the I I believe it's marketing that has gotten young people, especially afraid of using a bar of soap because they've come to think of it as dirty. And they think of a bottle of liquid in a giant piece of plastic as clean, and they don't want to touch a bar of soap. So, you know, I, I hate that waste of plastic. I, I, I would like to get back out of, out of all these bottles that we're using. I don't think it makes a big difference if you find something you like, as long as you're not over cleaning, as long as you're not sensitive or allergic to fragrance. I do like things that are hydrating, but I don't really, I'm not a proponent of scrubbing ourselves raw and then trying to put a more hydrating cleanser on there to make it less bad. Uh, you know, as I said, just use a little bit less, use it where you need it. And then we don't have to spend as much money on this stuff. We don't have to use as much plastic and we will be better to our skin. What about, I've heard, you know, like, I think it was Dr. Robert Shutkin who wrote all about the gut, a GI doctor that maybe we shouldn't even be using any soaps or shampoo because it's better for our microbiome to not, not clean ourselves with these products, get dirty in other words. Yeah, we're learning so much so quickly about the, microbes inside us and on our skin. And it's true. That's one of the reasons that I'm, a, I am a more proponent of, I am a, a proponent of re attacking our skin microbiome less and letting it have a more of a natural balance. Um, okay. You know, when we do use a soap or a cleanser on our faces, we are intentionally removing the natural moisturizing layer. Um, sometimes we do that intentionally to force it to rebalance itself, but we can over clean even our faces and trigger inflammation, rosacea, 
even acne by overcleaning. So I do believe in the microbiome. I do believe in, in our skin having a little bit more acid. That's a lower pH because that actually helps it maintain its own natural biological homeostasis, which is natural balance. And that's when it's best at healing itself. When we take away that acid mantle, which is acid layer, it becomes a higher pH, um, more basic rather than acidic, and it becomes unbalanced and gets inflamed. So that's another huge topic that I totally love. And is, is true. I agree with that. Nice. Okay. This is from, I hope I pronounce your name wrong. I'll just say V because I don't want to say the name wrong. What can I eat or apply to lighten brown patches on my face cheek area? I drink plenty of water and have applied over-the-counter creams to lighten and remove spots, but they don't seem to lighten very much. Chef AJ, I think everybody who watches us talk monthly knows that this is such a common question. And the reason that it is such a common question is that those brown spots on the cheeks are one of the most difficult uh, problems that we have to deal with. So um, even lasers are only partly satisfying. Sometimes it helps fade them and then they come back. I have said in the past that these brown spots can be either what we call lentigos, which are what we used to call the old fashioned uh, liver spots that people would get on their hands. Those brown sunspots that just sit there those are lentigos. They're very stubborn. They actually have a root that's hard to get out from the, they're really in the skin and they really don't peel off easily without leaving a mark. But sometimes we can fade them with products or lasers. Um, there's another type of a brown patchy pigment on the cheek, which I don't know which, which type we're talking about here. It's called melasma. And that is a really stubborn hormone and genetic uh, and inflammation and um, sun-related pigmentation that can be either deep or, or a little bit more superficial that can be worsened by lasers and worsened by irritating skin products. So we have to use a combination of lighteners, gentle treatments, sometimes a very gentle type of a laser um, or gentle skin lightening chemical peels but if we don't, for both types of brown spots, if we're not doing extreme, extreme sun protection to the point where we actually can't see the brown spot through sunscreen and makeup, it's probably not going to get them much better because they have to be completely blocked from the sun and get that ultraviolet radiation off of them completely. And now we know also get visible radiation, which is the, the rays of light that we can see, the light from the sun, fluorescent lighting, lighting for us to go on camera, all of that is visible light. And that also worsens it as does heat. So I was talking earlier about people who are in the kitchen a lot, standing over a hot stove, the heat, which is the invisible infrared radiation at the other end of the spectrum from the UV that infrared heat also makes melasma worse and also causes chronic changes in skin and other forms of pigmentation. So we have to block all of that to reduce this stuff getting worse and then try many, many various peels, products, and, and devices to try to fade them. But there is no one answer, unfortunately. Wow. Great. Well, I want to respect your time. Do you have time for one more question or you want to say good night, Gracie? I have time for one more question. Nice. We do ask these in the order received, just so you know. And this is from Jerry. I have a fingernail that is splitting vertically. The new growth comes in split as well. Why is this happening? And do you have any suggestions for getting a healthy nail back? So you take care of skin, nails, hair. You've got a lot of things to do. Right. Dermatologists are the only um, physicians whose board certification training is in skin, hair, and nails. So Jerry, again, I'm not giving Jerry medical advice, but just for people who may have this issue, um, I don't know, but it's possible that there is actually a small growth underneath the cuticle 
that could be pressing on what we call the nail matrix, which is the root where the nail is being formed before it shows, before it comes out of the cuticle and grows. That could be a small um, cyst. It could be a what we call a digital myxoid cyst, which is actually a little outpouching of jelly from our finger joint that makes a little bubble and it can crawl up to un underneath the fingernail. Um, and it's like a little pouch of a, kind of a clear jelly that is normally inside the joint. It's harmless, but it can press on the root of the nail, make a little bump and cause the nail plate that grows out from there to be weak, which would make it split at the end. It could also be something under the nail called a glomus tumor. It could be, you know, a little wart. It could be old, an old injury. If that fingernail root was ever crushed, that part of the nail matrix, which is the nail root, may have been permanently damaged. The cells there, a little dis, a little um, put into disarray, a little scarred, so that when that sliver of nail grows out, it's it looks okay, but it's actually weak. And then it splits by the time it gets to the end. Vertically splitting nails can be very tricky. Um, they should be seen by, by a dermatologist, but sometimes we need actually a nail expert, which is a subset of dermatologists, if it can't be figured out. It, it, there could be a little scar tissue up under the other end of the nail, and there can be a long scar called a pterygium, which is like a ridge of scar tissue that's also disrupting it. List goes on. Nails are nails are tricky, and it may be time to see a nail expert. So I didn't realize that's a subset of dermatology. Are they called anything special? No, but you know, nails and hair can be so complicated and require more in-depth evaluations and procedures. So some general practicing dermatologists do all of that. And some don't have as much expertise in when it's not something basic. And there are people that love nails and do only nails or love hair and really have been able to dedicate a practice to hair problems, hair loss, um, because it can take so much more work than a general derm may have time to do. Ah. Uh. Interesting. Yeah. I'd love to hear, I know we're out of time, but I'd love to hear what you think about nail products. Like, cause you know, there's gel, there's acrylic, there's dip, there's regular nail polish. Harmful. Well, I will tell you that anything that dries out the nail or uh, disrupts the surface of the nail does weaken it and makes them eventually be splitting. So sometimes people get a little bit addicted to the fake nails because once you're doing them, your own nail has just gotten weaker and weaker over time. For that reason, when we get these manicures, which can be so beautiful, especially now there's a culture of, you know, more and more elaborate and sculptural nails, the less we're do really doing to the nail underneath and the more gently we are removing these, the more we preserve our nail and the, the better for long-term nail growth. In addition to the fact that the more we disrupt the nail, the increase, the more we increase our risk of getting an infection, which can be really hard to get rid of. So whatever we do, I think the things that are less physically rough on the nail, the better. Great. Thank you. Beauty. It seems like beauty, what people will do in the name of beauty, right? Well, you know, we have to entertain ourselves. I guess we've been doing it since the time of Cleopatra, right? And before, at least we're not using creams that contain mercury anymore, which was, were famously used to whiten the skin because like I said, in the old days, it was considered aristocratic to have very pale skin. They would artificially whiten the skin with creams that were containing mercury, giving themselves mercury poisoning. And at least we know not to do that anymore. I wonder, like, you know, when I think about like movies like Goldfinger, where they were painted completely gold or Blue Man Group, where they're painted blue, like, is like, is that, is that harmful? Like, not that I would want to paint my whole body, but. Well, I'm, I really, I don't know the industry, but I'm sure that they're trying to use relatively safer body paints because using a toxic paint like that, um, as we discussed earlier with the surface area 
to volume ratio of our bodies, you know, covering our entire surface area with a toxin night after night for shows and some matinees twice a week does not sound healthy. So I'm sure they are using, you know, relatively safer products like, you know, kids would use Play-Doh, which is almost edible instead of using some more toxic clays that adults would use. Nice. Well, your, your skin looks beautiful. Maybe one day you'll show us your routine. Well, thank you, Chef AJ. It's always fun to be here with you. Now, have you let your podcast go because the link doesn't work anymore? It's not. Oh, does it not work? I actually moved it to another hosting platform. So maybe that messed up, but thank you for um, mentioning it because I did take a long, long pause on it, but it is my intention next year to either start the podcast up again or start doing it on YouTube and and really get my channel going. So everybody keep an eye out, but I want to, um, you know, you mentioned that you're that, did you say that you're going to have Dr. Gregor on in next week? I I can tell you exactly. I believe it's Thursday. He'll be on at one. No, not next week. Maybe it's in two weeks. He'll be on, on the 21st of December, which is a Thursday at 1 PM Pacific time. Well, here's what I was thinking. I don't know if this will, if this is amenable for you, but this is his, you know, week one of the book sales. Maybe people will buy the book and also your books are, are being sold right now. Right. Chef AJ. Yes, I have a big discount guys. Thank you for mentioning two yeah. books. The publisher is discounting all month. If you live in the United States, it's free shipping, but lots of bonuses, so much bonus material, videos, recipes, make a great gift. If you already have one. Yeah. I love your books. Those are everybody. Those are must gets for everybody. And Dr. Gregor's book this week, because it's, it's week one of sales, but you know, maybe he's going to come on and talk about it when he's on. And then, you know, I'm back in a month. So maybe we're going to have a, a discussion uh, further digging into that skin chapter there. You want, and me, I'm not going to like, I don't, I never want to pit doctors against each other, especially the wonderful plant-based doctors, but is there any information you can give me that I can give him? Cause you know, I'm going to be asking him that question first. No, I want to just hear, I want to know everything that he thinks, you know, I, he has access to so much information and I always learn and I really want to know everything that he knows so I can be educating everybody. So no, nothing special. I just want to hear what he has to say. Okay. Maybe I'll ask him to watch the the little uh, clip that we did. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Krant. Be sure to send me the clickable link for wherever your podcast is now so I can update the show notes. Oh, thank you so much. And can't wait to see everybody again soon. And happy holidays too. Thank you. You too. Thank you. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 9 a.m. Pacific time for brand new vegans. Chuck Underwood He's going to be making little smoky carrot cocktail dogs from his new book, which I don't know the name, but I'm guessing it's plant, uh, the brand new vegan. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.